This week on Big Meow. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com. That's digmeoutunion.com. DMO. It's an abbreviation. <laughs> it's important to know that. It's the first letter of each word. Jay. We haven't done this Tim. in a while. We, we, we've been on vacation, both of us, so... Um, People don't know that. It's just been another week. It's just been another week, but we actually recorded um, 17 episodes back in March. And, uh, no. But we both have had... We've had nice vacations. We've had time to spend with records that uh, when, we, when we were on planes and, and long automobile trips and uh, various other rental cars, that sort of thing. So yes, it's been uh, and when we had to talk to Dewey Cole with the 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 uh, villains episode of the Verve Pipe, we we talked about uh, recording on various or or listening on various headphones and and whatnot, and that's the case with this episode as well. Lots of different options for listening to this episode. Yeah, travel is a good excuse to catch up with music. Yes, it is. And, mm-hmm. dr- and drown out your family who are sitting around you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to listen to this. It's for the podcast. Uh, joining us, it's going to be a slightly different episode than when he joined us for Guar. Different, slightly different <laughs> musical uh, approach. Yeah, let's swing the other way here. Swing the OC pendulum. is back with us. Welcome back, sir. Hey, thank you very much, guys. Good to hear from you. Yeah, this is going to be a little bit uh, different than the, the Guar episode. Uh, a little bit of a different uh, listen. Tell everyone your pick and why you picked it. Yeah, so um, for my uh, 12-month pick, uh, I chose Material Issues, uh, 1991 album, International Pop Overthrow. Uh and I was thinking about it a while ago when uh, there was the when you guys did the roundtable for Power Pop, and I was really excited to hear uh, what some people thought about this uh, this album because you know I I figured it'd get mentioned, but uh, you know you, you just don't always have time to get to everything, and uh, I think this one uh, is a standout, and uh, I want to hear what some people have to say about it. Excellent, you're right. It did not come up. And to be quite frankly honest, quite frank, quite honest, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, I only knew the one song. I knew going into this review, uh, the the first track, Valerie Loves Me. That was it. Valerie I, Loves Me, yeah. And I think that's probably what a lot of people know. Uh, that was the, I think so, yeah. The big single. Jay, how about you? Were you aware? Had you listened to this album? Did you know the single? What's your history with this band uh i knew the single uh had never listened to the album um honestly i thought this was an 80s band i thought it was like an early 80s band when i uh had heard the band names had seen the album cover even that song 
Um, I just never connected them to the 90s for whatever reason. We can get into that deeper as we review it, but uh, um, I was all com- all confused with this band. I-, I probably was in the same boat because this album came out in 1991, International Pop Overthrow, but it doesn't sound particular 90s-ish. We'll get into that. Not um, really. But the band was originally formed in 1985. Uh, it was uh, Jim Ellison on guitar, vocals... And then uh, bassist Ted Anasi, and Ansani. Not sure how to pronounce that. Of course. And then drummer Mike sure. Zelenko. Mm-hmm. And they put out an EP of their own in 1987, um, and then went to Zion, Illinois, to record at. Uh, a studio owned by the band a guy named Jeff Murphy from the band Shoes. Now Zion is interesting because that's where Local H is from as well. Right, right. And uh, actually, funny about that, uh, if I can uh, interject really quick, is that uh, Lo- Local H is one of my favorite bands ever. I've seen them dozens of times, and uh, you know I follow them pretty closely online. And I know um, Dewey, who I just—I'm not sure when you recorded the uh, the uh, Dewey Cole uh, villains. Uh, verb pipe episode but uh going after him is some tough shoes to fill because he's a <laughs> he's a knowledgeable guy i follow i follow uh, he, he's pretty active on local h message board so i know i don't know if he knows me but uh you know he's a he's got some pretty impeccable taste too i like that the world of of uh dig me out in the in a venn diagram is also like <laughs> connected to the local h message boards like the fact that there are still message boards, because <laughs> I just I just assume everybody's in on Reddit threads and you know Facebook groups and stuff. Well, like that. Well, by now I'm pretty sure it's a Facebook group, but I I yeah. mean the local age message boards go pretty far back. So th- this is their debut record. It came out like I mentioned, 1991 on um, Mercury Records. And interesting notes about it it cost five thousand dollars to record it. it was recorded between 1988 and 1991 mercury signed the band they had set up you know when you when you do that they figure out like well we're going to print copies ahead of time to get in the stores and they they estimated they were going to sell about seventy thousand copies of this record in 1991 mm-hmm. which is that's not bad i mean that's a, that's a solid amount for a band on their debut record um it sold three hundred thousand. And it made it to number 86 on the Billboard 200 chart. So That's considerably higher than I knew. And it, and it actually, like, you know, did fairly well. Um, got re-released in uh, 2011, a 20th anniversary with uh, singles and yes. live tracks was released. Uh, they mm-hmm. followed it up in 1992 with Destination Universe that was also released on Mercury. And then in 1994, mm-hmm. Freak City Soundtrack, that was also released on Mercury. Different producer, though. That was uh, Mike Chapman, who had been the producer for Blondie and The Knack. They decided not to work with uh, Jeff Murphy again at the Shoes Studio. And then in, also in 1994, they released a live... I don't know if it was an album or an EP called Going Through Your Purse. And then, sadly, the lead singer and guitarist, Jim Ellison, committed suicide in 1996. 
And this happened right. after the band was dropped by Mercury. He was found dead at his home, and um, the band released some material posthumously after that. But what's interesting is that the name of this album, International Pop Overthrow, has turned up as the name of a festival in honor of the mm-hmm. band that plays uh, each year in a couple different cities. It is a celebration of power pop. I have uh, I've attended once. So tell just what is that like? Is it just so, like a well, rock, just like a festival so, with all power pop, or is there anything like unique about it? I, well, I'll, I'll say the one I went to was probably a little bit uh, different than what they usually have going on because I went in 2011. That coincided with uh, the 20th anniversary of International Pop Overthrow the album, and uh, the the two surviving members, Ted and Mike, got together with another Chicago artist. Um, I forget Phil's last name right now, um, but uh, they they labeled themselves as Material Reissue and uh, mm. played the album front to back and a couple uh, extra songs from the later albums as well. Uh, so that was 2011. I was I, I was definitely consider considerably younger than most of the crowd. I think I was probably little, uh, probably 28 at the time. But it, it was a ton of fun just being able to live out those songs. I, I never got to see material issue live because i probably got into them i don't know I, I was pretty young i'm thinking maybe 96 97 ish so i i would have been more like middle school age I, I i rode my bicycle to a used record shop to pick up the album so just being able to see those guys play it live uh and do it some real justice was that that was just awesome concert for me and one other note or I- interesting i guess bit of trivia the tragically hip song "Escape Is at Hand" for the traveling man from the album Fan of Power is dedicated to Jim Ellison, which I did not know until reading about this record. So, uh, that's an interesting. Way cool. I would never have made that connection, but I just, uh, but found that very cool because that's one of my favorite hip songs. So, oh, cool. Let's talk about the comments over at Patreon. We always get comments, Jay, and we and we like to uh, share them on the show. We want to thank Eric Peterson for chiming in. He said, Valerie Loves Me was one of those songs, my college roommate, shout out to Ryan, over and over and over and over. It took me years to get around to checking out the full album, and it's a solid 90s power pop record, maybe one of the great power pop albums of the era. I do think they were out of step with the music cycle in that era when labels were trying whatever and seeing what sold. The material issue fell through the cracks. Maybe they were not pushed in the right places. I do think if they held held on a couple more years, they might have been able to ride that whole a boy named Goo wave of alt power pop. Interesting. Can get into that. Yeah, I think so. And then Keith Badge says, I think they tried to roll it out that long, but the unfortunate death of Allison ended it. That and the posthumous record, Telecommando Americana, was probably too weird to ride that wave. Oh, okay. He was responding to, to Eric then. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, uh, I really like Destination Universe and Freak City soundtrack. Greatest used CD, used CD shopping day ever. The first two Manx Street, Street Preachers albums plus Destina- Destination Universe for $8. Worth ten times that. <laughs> I agree. That's a score. C- considering I paid like thirty-five dollars for an import copy of uh, the first Mannix album at Virgin Megastore back in uh, the early two thousands, because they didn't stock <laughs> the American version. So, 
Had to get in the imports and way overpay. Let's get into the actual record. Let's talk about what we liked about International Pop Overthrow by Material Issue. Jay, I'll start with you. Tell me one thing you liked about this record. Well, the songwriting is really, really, really strong. And I like that, um, you know, it, it is hooky, but it's hooky in different ways. that It kind of don't necessarily have a formula. I think Valerie Loves Me is um, a good example of, you know, I think their most unique take on um, power pop or, or just rock and roll um, in that, you know, the hook is is very much in the verse. And, and I think all the verses on this record are melodically very strong. Uh, the chorus is pretty simple. And, and I think a lot of these songs, when they work best, um, the courses are fairly simple. But what makes it the hook is just the way it's delivered. And there's a cool, I don't know if it's saxophone or what the hell it is, but, you know, a little instrument hook uh, mixed in. I think on the songs like Diane, it's another example where the chorus is fairly simple, but the, the verses are very melodic, at least um, from a vocal standpoint. You know, it's got some good tones, um, you know, so it's it's still beefy. A, a song like Diane's got a big hollow body guitar tone, almost uh, cult-like, um, cult electric. It kind of reminded me of that era, you know, and it's got overall just a sense of urgency to it, I guess, and energy that I really like. You know, there's a couple tracks where it slows down a bit and, and gets, you know, into kind of the slow dance ballad territory. It still works fairly well, but I think when it's at its best, you know, they're pushing the tempos, you know, it's got a little bit of attitude. It's it's produced in a simple way that, that kind of makes it timeless as well. So you, you kind of get all the elements you're looking for in a power pop record. You know, you got hooks, you got fairly simple, you know, approach, um, really good songwriting, you know, talented performances, a good singer some harmonies, you know, it's got all the ingredients you're looking for if this is the kind of stuff you're into. Well, the songwriting's great, but I also love how this band is able to, you know, we reference power pop. Power pop actually can hit on a lot of different things, and they are able to, like, touch on so many different aspects of pop and a little bit of punk, like... There are mm-hmm. songs that have a little bit of like Ramones edge to them in that like syrupy, you know, where they're what they're at their most Phil Spectorish kind of Ramones. And this band, you know, dials that in. They dial in Big Star. You mentioned Valerie Loves Me. That's a really kind of a weird song in terms of structure for a pop. I mean, it's it's driven by like you said the verses are the, where the where the, like the big melody happens 
um there's like a driving hook with the guitar that comes in that like real double bend guitar and the the screaming of uh the the core or the title of the song but like yeah it's it's really kind of weird but it works great and there's so many songs like that where like you said jay they just use like a very simple chorus but it's the, the verses that are carrying it which is what really makes great power pop music is that you you get hooked as soon as the song starts because the vocal melody in the verse is just as hooky in as the verse is the chorus um you know the posies pull that off who are contemporaries of this band matthew sweet pulls that off again contemporaries but in listening to this i was hearing like you know just so much classic power pop history pop history with you know the who and and um even you know you heard some stuff like the birds and just some great just because of the melodies of uh of these songs and they they i love that even though the songs are all so concise and have you know pretty st- straightforward structures that they play with the way that the they deliver the hooks so like diane you know it's the re- repetition of diane or um valerie loves me but then you get into a song like uh this far below which has that like elevating vocal hook in the chorus where they hit like two different harmonies that's mm-hmm. just great i mean that is like that is sugar into the vein when i hear that like oh my gosh that sounds great and that's that's a really cool song and it's at the tail end of the record um which just totally. tells you how much like really interesting stuff is happening There's a lot of background vocals that I think are done really exceptionally well yeah. throughout the record. Yeah, I mean, like I, I agree with everything in the in the songsmanship and how great the uh, you know pop sensibility and it's great that they're concise, they're to the point, the melodies are everywhere. And uh, but the, the one that you know, if I one thing that I paid more attention to since uh, since I got this what twenty something years ago is that uh, it, the background vocals just kind of punched me in the face several times throughout the record. Yeah. And I, I, I assume that that's, get... is that the, is that uh, the, the bass player and the drummer or are they doing those or is it him doing those? Or is it Jim Ellison doing those in the studio? I'm you know? not totally sure, but I, I don't know who actually did them on the record. Okay. I, I would guess pro- it, it could be a combination of both of them. Gotcha. Uh, did you guys get to check out any of the uh, the live tracks during uh, during the uh, homework session of listening to Material Issue? Because I know there were some live tracks that were released with the reissue, and uh, they they just take it up a notch. They take it up a notch to like twelve. They do a real awesome uh, 
cover of uh, Ballroom Blitz. You know the song from Sweet. I think that's Sweet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they do a really awesome cover. I, mean, I, I kind of forget if it's on the, on the re-release or if it's on the live album. But that's one like worth really checking out, hearing them uh, dial it up a notch. The re-release has a. They do a cover of um, Thin Lizzy's "Cowboy Song," which is oh, pretty okay. true to the original. Like, which I, I wouldn't have expected from this band, but uh, they nail it. Mm-hmm. And there's some other songs in here that sound familiar. I'm not sure if they're covers or not. Um, there's only one song, live song. It's called "The Boxer." Huh. Hmm. All right, so it must have been on uh, the live record that I was that I was thinking of. But uh, yeah, definitely check that out if you get a chance. So, how did you discover? Do you remember how how you picked up this record? Yeah, yeah. I um, my first exposure was hearing Valerie loves me on uh, on a radio uh, station. Out, I mean, I'm suburb of Chicago, so uh, you know, back even I don't know if it was ninety six or ninety seven. It still got a little bit of traction on the radio, and I was I I remember like I was still taping songs off the radio onto a cassette boom box mm-hmm. and uh they did just hearing that one that uh, valerie loves me on the just the hooks got me quick and uh like i said i i got on a bicycle to go to go to the used record shop pick it up um but yeah it's one of those that uh i think over time you know i probably listened to that first maybe third of the record pretty constantly and then you know maybe it left rotation for a little bit, and then I, you know, then I re- then I discover that whole middle half that just kicks it up a notch more, and so I think it's it's just been one of those that I, I revisit every once in a while, and uh, I mean it's it's one of those that 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 I don't think that I ever truly put away. I want to mention a. Um another band that came up here that we talk about a lot but um and that's cheap trick um a song on here um re- he sounds a lot like robin zander on this letter yes it's me driving past your house again I mean, he really hits those high notes that Robin Zander can hit, which I think, you know, Power Pop typically has a competent singer. I don't, you know, it doesn't always have a exceptional singer. And while that's not one of my favorite songs on the record, I think the vocal performance is 
really, really strong and almost unexpected. Um, as you get into the record that you're going to hear vocals, a lead vocal that is, you know, that strong. And it's not often you hear singers that sound like Robin Zander. I mean, he's got a pretty unique and powerful voice. So I, I just wanted to call that out because that's a band we talk about a lot, I, I think, um, in general terms. But this is one of the few uh, I heard a real, real close comparison, at least from a vocal standpoint. Cool. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying with the comparison because he gets high, but like Robin Zander, when he gets high, it's not like shrill. Yeah. It's like, he. it just sounds, it still sounds like meaty and and it still has like an edge to it that sometimes when singers would get that way, it gets like, and it does. It doesn't get falsetto-y either. Like sometimes you you get into that falsetto end of stuff. Yeah, and he kind of does that. Uh, you know, Robert Zaner has this way of like expressing like sadness and despair. You know, and and the way he kind of yells lines and, and sings lines, and he he really nails that, um, which I appreciated. You know, uh, I I heard a wide. I think you touched on this a little bit, but I also heard a just a a wide variety. You know, you mentioned punk, but like I heard on a song like Little Christine, I mean, that sounds like a poison guitar riff. <laughs> you know, it's a straightforward just, you know what I mean? It almost sounds like that one poison song, Talk Dirty to Me. I mean, the riff is very close. You know, and, and at the end of the day, I mean, setting the image aside, they were, a, you know, probably closer to pop than anything as well. So it's just kind of interesting, like all the different bands as you dig into this record, you, you kind of hear from, you know, the birds to the cult to cheap trick to, you know, I heard a little bit of a poison thing there for a second. Um, the Beatles, obviously with all the harmonies, um, but never, never in a derivative way, you know, it's just sort of like flavors. Yeah. I hear Interesting, that. Yeah. Jay, what didn't work for you? on this record um you know i think it, it i like the band when there's when there's some sadness there i think that's why valerie loves me works so well there's there's a sadness and a dark just a dark tinge to it um between the chord choices and how he sings um how it's delivered the feel um i think the band works better um when they've got that little bit of uh, something there that's a little mysterious or dark or, or you know, minor keys here and there. Um, if it gets too too major and too bright, it, it feels a little, you know, sugary, too sugary. Um, and that's the tr- I think that the hard line to walk with power pop is at least for me is I like the bands that are able to deliver a hook and you know some brightness, but there's you know they're flipping to, you know, the dark either through, you know, verse chorus or some other kind of, you know, way they're singing it or an instrument or something. There's, there's something bringing it, uh, to contrast the, the poppiness. So I think some of the songs, particularly, you know, maybe some of the ballads, um, you know, this letter is a good example of, you know, it just, it's so, you've got the pop plus the ballad. So it, it just sounds a little like 
Brian Adamsy, or if I'm going to say cheap trick, it's <laughs> going to be the flame cheap trick. You know, it did have a flame feel. Yeah. <laughs> so you get some of that thinking. generic AOR kind of sounding moments on the record that that I think could work better. They're few and far between, though. Yeah, there there's not a whole lot that doesn't work. There are definitely songs that I prefer, and they tend to be the up tempo ones for this band. Um, the stuff that's slower, like you mentioned um with uh this letter and i think um very first lie like those are fine songs and i don't even mind when they descend into like sort of a little bit of a a genre uh like there's almost like a rockabilly song song sounding song on one of these i just had that i I think it was maybe because it was like a clean guitar with a little bit of reverb and um but i just feel like his vocal sound which one was it? No, I, I, I'm not uh, sure. I'm trying to think who, which one would be. Are you Trouble, maybe? Maybe it was it. Maybe it was Trouble. That 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 drum beat is just... Yeah, I could maybe see a little bit of rockability, especially in the drum Yeah, cause, it's because of that beat, that, you know, that typical, like, sort of punk rockability beat. Oh, yeah. And it, it's it's sure. a story. It's kind of a story song, too. You know, I mean, it even says, let yeah. me tell you the story, and it kind of has characters. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, it could be like social distortion even. Yeah. Um sure, sure. When they when they hit like the the high point with their melody and the guitar riff and like Jay said there's like a little tinge of darkness to it with the song or they're just going out like inter- this the title track International Pop Overthrow. Like when they hit that like really tasty pop melody, those totally work for me. And then there's like there's just like two or three that I could leave just because I don't, I don't feel like they have 14 songs. That's a lot for, for any band to pull off, you know, all gems. So, um, I pretty are, much agree with all of that. Okay. Yeah. I was curious about just what, saying, like, what stuff know, for you. No, I was going to say, I, I pretty much agree with all of that. Uh, uh, you know, 14 is a little bit long and, you know, maybe 12 would be better with some of the ones that kind of sound like, middle school dance ballads possibly you know they're not bad songs but you know b-sides are b-sides for a reason sometimes and you know i think uh one thing i really wanted to ask you guys um because uh, i i think sometimes you guys are a lot better at listening with a uh, critical ear with regards to production uh i wondered what you thought about the production on the record because i think you guys referenced earlier like it's it kind of does feel like an 80s record and i don't know if that's production or if that's just the feel of the songs or i don't know yeah uh, yeah i heard I, I heard a little bit um, i think it's both i think it's both i think there's some i think there's elements here of the songs that sound to me like new romantics um, new wave 80s pop early 80s pop and then there's um there is some production stuff here that's heavy on the reverb, you know, the yeah, some yeah. and it, it it's almost like some songs you notice it more than others, which is odd. You know, there's some songs where the drums just got so much reverb on them, it's 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 a little distracting. And there's others where it's not so bad, and I'm not sure if they're playing with the reverb across the record like turning turning it up and down or if it's just the way that some of the songs are presented it's more noticeable. Um but for me I think it was a mix of 
both the production and we we see this with early 90s records you know 9091 they tend to have uh, more of that um super glossy you know big chamber reverb sound because we we haven't gotten to never mind yet <laughs> I, so, I was gonna ask that just it, it's 91 but this is like you know like six months right before Nevermind comes out yeah. you know jesus jones is still the big seller of the year that's right yeah right right and it, it makes sense then when you look at those sales numbers and you're like oh this is a band that they could have maybe thought the record label i'm speaking of they could have thought mm-hmm. well this is a good debut you know we've we're i think they sold initially one hundred eighty thousand uh out of the box and and then eventually turned into three hundred thousand. But you know they probably thought, okay, we got a solid starter here, and uh, let's get a let's get a video on MTV, let's get on you know radio, and um, you know put them out on the road, get them touring. Um, I think they did like 120 minutes around this time mm-hmm. when the record came out with, and the host was Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson, or hosts were Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson from the Replacements, who awesome. also I believe had a record out. Was that uh, All Shook Up came out in 91, I think, or 90 or 91? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that's the only one that was in the 90s. Yeah. So they might have, you know, Mercury might have looked at that and said, well, we've got, you know, this band that could do something, and then Nirvana hits. And you're like, nope, this is not it. <laughs> but I liked how the uh, the Patreon uh, people mentioned that, yeah, if they, if they had stuck around till you know, maybe 96, 97 and rode out the wave of, I don't know if you second or third tier post grunge alternative, you know, would they have found their little niche there? I don't, I'd have to listen to the albums after this. I feel like the guitar tone is still too 80s. I, 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 I know this album far better than I know the other two or three. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely hear the production change a little bit. If you just listen to the uh, the singles off the next two, they put out uh, What Girls Want and uh, Kim the Waitress. Uh, I think they had videos for both of those. Uh, it, those sound more like they could be in that 96, 97 range, my, my opinion. Gotcha. And, and, and Google Dolls were the, I think, band reference there. And yeah. Um, you know, they, they evolved and really per- persevered. I mean, and, you know, being where we are now, I, I realize not everybody's a huge fan of that band, but their career is pretty interesting when you look at, you know, oh, yeah. they, they they stuck it out, man. And they kept, you know, evolving and listening and paying attention and tweaking the band. Mm-hmm. So, you know, had this band done something like that, I, I would agree. But not every band's capable of doing that, like are willing, you know. Um, so sure. it's sure. hard to say. I mean, certainly the talent is there. It, it's not about that. It's about you know, what are your goals? What are you trying to do? And if it is, you know, to make true pop music, well, I think that's what the Goo Goo Dolls wanted to do. And that's what they did. You know, they, they sort of did what they had to do to, to make that happen. Was this band willing to do that? It it doesn't seem like they were. Um, I I I will say, I think in comparison of the two bands, I feel like John Resnick has the most, has the more, like radio tuned voice whereas Jim Allison's oh, yeah. voice is just like just a, a a bit too I don't know how to say it but other than like it, at times he almost sounds British 
Like oh, totally. And, yeah, yeah. and absolutely. That didn't fly at this time period. Like it flew if you were like Oasis and you were had this like snarly kind of you know swagger. But like Blur didn't do well in the United States when they were doing hey, Country yeah. House and you know that sort of. It wasn't until song two, when it was, uh, you know, a basically like a grunge song, and yeah. so I don't know how that would have. I, I don't know how. I don't know how they could have ever evolved to that point. Like he would have had to have changed the way he sang, and um, I don't. I just don't know if that was possible. I, and I don't know that I would want them to just like f- go full bore into uh, alternative mainstream pop. That's uh, that's a pretty specific, you know, narrowing of their skill set, and their skill set is pretty wide. Mm-hmm. So oh, even then, it, it even had the, you know, had their moment in ninety six, ninety seven, fitting in there. You know, it's just gonna all turn into Limp Biscuit anyway. So right, it's all doomed anyways. <laughs> How well would they have said there? <laughs> It's all doomed. <laughs> it's all doomed. Uh, let's talk about overall ratings on this record. Were the album better EP, decent single? Jay, where do you land? I've got a worthy album. Um, you know, even a song like "Very First Lie," um, I think the chorus really saves it. Um, I think that guitar line in that is really fun. So even in the songs where, you know, maybe they're not my favorite, there's still something about each one of them that I that I enjoyed, and I think connects to the others that I did like. And you know, I've got um, a good two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, ten songs here highlighted as as songs I really enjoyed. So ten out of fourteen is pretty damn good. Um, and that's a record. That's a that's a full album in my book. So. I'm in an album. I am as well, and I'm also at 10 songs. Um, I think it's an album that people should rediscover if they haven't ever listened to it or if they have maybe gave it a you know a, a brief listen back in the 90s because um, there's so much diversity within their very specific sort of sound that they – like all the bands that we've mentioned really do have – a part on this record and um it's interesting to hear so many different little nuances to their sound that come up you know either in a verse or in a chorus and it's really a cool record in that respect so uh oh see i'm gonna go ahead and assume worthy record worthy album yeah yeah, you can put me down as a worthy record okay And, and there was a like early '90s, let's just say power pop, little movement, right? I mean, you had them, you had Jellyfish, you had um, Red Cross was doing some stuff at the time. It seemed like there was some, you know, pre-grunge that was one of the options we had on the table of where things could go. Yeah, I, I know we didn't talk about it a ton in our power pop, but just revisiting this record made made me kind of think about that a little bit and. Um, it was certainly a good time for this type of music, and the possibilities were wide open at that point because oh, yeah. Nirvana I mean, hadn't broken yet. So I mean, this is the year of Matthew Sweet's girlfriend, yeah, which was yeah, that's a good one, which was had a huge single. I mean, that was on MTV constantly. 
even though he was, you know, prior to this kind of a not not a well known artist, he was kind of an underground artist with his first two releases. So there was definitely an some sort of at least the you can see the record labels weren't shying away from it. I mean, material yeah. issues on Mercury. Uh, Matthew Sweet was on Zoo, which was um, a subsidiary of BMG and Sony Music. Well, Sony Music now, but BMG back in the day. Um, so, like, major labels were taking their shots with them, and they probably saw, you know, there was it was kind of wide open in the sense that, you know, we've talked about how grunge didn't necessarily kill hair metal. Hair metal was sort of killing itself with you know, uh, just a plethora of bands being thrown out there. And there was a whole underground alternative movement through all, you know, college radio and, you know, Jane's addiction was a thing and the Pixies and REM and all these bands were like making mainstream strides in terms of well, yeah, and I, MTV. And I, think, I think maybe what some of this, you know, was about uh, a band like this was about for record labels was, you know, you, you took the hooks from the hair metal stuff or at least the pop metal stuff and you changed the image and made it, you know, more timeless and simple. Um, but but you kept the, you know, the, the part that sold. So I could see this, you know, from just a and R standpoint, it, it would seem to make a lot of sense for that time. Right. So if you would like to suggest an album, yes, you listener, you can go to Patreon, dig dig me out. It's a or DMO Union dot com. I'm never gonna get the website right, Jay. Just never. It's never gonna happen. <laughs> it's so ingrained in my head that it's it's something else, not DMO Union. I'm gonna have to get like shock treatment or something. Um, we we gotta thank. Forgot to mention at the top, two new pledgers, Bugs. That's all. Just Bugs, and then Tim Holsizer. <laughs> Welcome, both of you. Thanks for thanks for joining the uh, the union. Look for our upcoming '80s episode. It'll be happening in just a few weeks, and also you'll be getting stickers in the mail next month. Good times. Well, I'm glad you guys are at a worthy album. Uh, I guess that means it beats out Guar. <laughs> <laughs> Which I also mean, came out in '91. That's so weird. <laughs> these two records same year yeah someone needs to write an article about everything that was coming out in 91 prior to Nirvana so we could see like where things could have gone <laughs> like pretend like yeah, that, that, that uh, didn't happen that Venn diagram is less consistent yeah here are all the paths forward yeah here are all the different paths forward What which, which way are we going to go choose your own adventure <laughs> <laughs> And if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. OC, thank you for joining us again, and thank you for supporting the podcast. Greatly appreciate it. And thanks hey, for coming thank on. you so much. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. All right, so for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash Out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Just-